Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Part 6. For more resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time, we saw that there is a difference in the New Testament drawn between Christians who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit and Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. All Christians have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and are therefore indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and uh, the first part of chapter 3, Paul says that although um, all Christians are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, some Christians still are living under the domination and influence of the flesh. That is to say, the fallen human nature, um, and therefore do not produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Instead, these Christians uh, exhibit the works of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. And we saw that the signs of the Spirit-filled life are not charismatic gifts like speaking in tongues or um, prophetic utterance or working of healing miracles. The church in Corinth exhibited all sorts of charismatic gifts and yet was one of the most carnal churches in the New Testament. Rather, the evidence of the Spirit-filled life is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Those who are walking in the Holy Spirit, who are filled with the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives rather than the works of the flesh. Now the question then that I left us with is this. Why is it that so many Christians are not filled with the Holy Spirit? Why is it that so many Christians seem to fall into that category of um, carnal Christians, Christians who are still living under the domination and influence of the fallen human nature? Why do so few seem to enjoy the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me suggest two reasons as to why uh, so many Christians are not filled with the Holy Spirit. The first reason, I think, is due to a lack of total commitment. A lack of total commitment. In other words, these persons, though they are Christians, aren't really sold out 100% to Christ. And this lack of total commitment, I think, um, prevents the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their life and leaves them in the power of the flesh. Look at Jesus' very familiar parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. In verses 3 to 9 Mark, uh, of Mark 4, Jesus gives the parable of the sower, and then in verses 14 to 20, he gives its interpretation. So Mark 4, verses 3 to 9. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, 
where it had not much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus the parable of the sower. Now in verses 14 to 20, Jesus interprets this parable for us. He says, the sower sows the word. And these are those along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which is sown in them. And these, in like manner, are the ones sown upon rocky ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown upon the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now I want to draw your attention to that third kind of soil. Uh, the ones that are the, the seed that is sown uh, among thorns. These persons receive the word, but they are not fruitful. They don't bear grain. They're living, but they're not a fruitful type of plant. What is the difference between these people and the people who are the good soil that bear fruit? Uh, 30, 60, 100 fold. Well, Jesus identifies three things that choke out the word and make them unfruitful. The cares of the world, that is to say, just the pressures and the vicissitudes of life that drag them down, the cares of the world. Secondly, the delight in riches, the desire for monetary gain, for affluence, the delight in riches, and thirdly then, the desire for other things. Their heart's desire is not for God, not for the kingdom. Their heart's desire is for other things. And this, these three features conspire to make these people unfruitful. The cares of the world, the delight in riches, and the desire for other things. The contrast to this type of person, I think, is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. 
where Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be yours as well. Here Jesus says your focus is not to be upon worldly things, upon prosperity, uh, upon material things. Rather, we are to seek first God's kingdom and its righteousness. And that's in contrast, I think, to those who are represented by that third type of soil who lack this kind of total commitment. Their commitment is not first and foremost to God and his righteousness and, and his kingdom, but they have a desire for other things, for riches, and are burdened with the cares of this world. And so this, I think, would explain why many Christians are not spirit-filled, fruitful Christians. Now, the prescription for being that good soil, that type of person who seeks first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, is found, I think, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, gives the prescription for this kind of life. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here Paul describes a person who is totally committed to God, body and soul. His body is committed to God as a living sacrifice. And then he is transformed by the renewal of his mind. So body and soul uh, sold out to Christ. And the result is that you can discern what is then the will of God. And notice what the will of God is. It's characterized by three adjectives. It is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. You don't need to be afraid of God's will for your life. God's perfect will for you, if you could fully understand it, you would recognize to be good. It would be acceptable, not only acceptable to God, but acceptable to you as well. And it would be perfect. That means there's nothing you can do to improve upon it. Any efforts you could take or make to improve upon God's will for your life would only damage it because it's already perfect. So there's no reason not to be totally committed to Christ in the way that Paul describes as a living sacrifice, body and soul given to him. And so bearing fruit uh, through the Holy Spirit directing and controlling your life. So I think that one of the reasons that many Christians are not filled with the Holy Spirit is due to a lack of total commitment on their part. But that's not the only reason. I think secondly, there is a reliance upon self-effort that frustrates the attempt 
to lead a spirit-filled life, a reliance upon self-effort. Some people may indeed be totally committed to Christ. They're sold out to Christ, but they're attempting to live the Christian life on their own strength, in their own power. That is to say, in the power of the flesh. And that is futile. The Christian life is impossible to lead in the power of the flesh. It cannot be done through self-effort. This is what Jesus teaches us in the parable of the vine and the branches in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Look at John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It couldn't be clearer, could it? The branch severed from the vine is powerless to produce fruit. It only withers and dies. The secret to bearing fruit is to be abiding in the vine. And as the life of the vine courses through the branches, uh, they will naturally become fruitful. Um, and so it is a matter not of self-effort, um, but rather a matter of abiding in Christ. Notice that after his resurrection, the disciples were told to tarry in Jerusalem, or as our British friends would say, tarry in Jerusalem, tarry in Jerusalem until they are endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but before many days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here, the Holy Spirit is the secret to the power to be effective witnesses for Christ throughout the world. So, to go out on your own, to try to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit, is futile and hopeless. The secret to the fruitful Christian life is allowing Christ to live out his life through me. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 
and verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the same truth that's expressed in the parable of the vine and the branches. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. It is Christ living through us that enables us to have a fruitful Christian existence. So without the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is described here by saying Christ is living in me, that is to say the Holy Spirit of Christ living in me, without that filling of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life is reduced to legalism and grinding self-effort. Uh, and therefore, the non-Christian will actually often be happier than the Christian who is living a defeated Christian experience uh, in the power of the flesh. This, I think, was uh, described no better than in the following testimony that I want to read from a Christian minister who apostatized and walked away from Christ and became a non-Christian. And he contrasts his life as a Christian with the life that he now has as an apostate. Um, and I think you will hear a description that is perfect of the carnal Christian existence lived in the power of the flesh. This is what he says. Since I'm passionate about the things I'm interested in, I tried as best as I could to be a faithful Christian and good minister. I accepted God's grace, and it radically changed my life when I was a teenager. After being saved, I wanted to show God how grateful I was for his gift of salvation by committing my life over to him with all I had, even though I knew it was by grace that I had been saved, I almost always felt guilty that I wasn't doing enough in response to God's love. Whether it was spending time in prayer, evangelizing, reading the Bible, tithing, forgiving someone who had done me wrong, or whether it was struggling with temptations of lust and pride and selfishness or laziness, I almost always felt guilty. I never could understand how Christian people could come to church every Sunday and never get involved much in the church's programs because to me that's what believers would want to do as I did. Today, I am pretty much guilt-free in the sense that I have no guilt in regards to the Christian duties mentioned above. In fact, I can't remember when I have ever been happier than I am today. I'm living life to the hilt, pretty much guilt-free, primarily because my ethical standards aren't as high. In fact, I believe the Christian ethical standards are simply impossible for anyone to measure up to. 
Think about it. According to Jesus, I should feel guilty for not just what I do, but for what I think about. Lusting, hating, coveting, etc. I'd like every person to experience the freedom I have found. That, I think, is a perfect description of the carnal Christian life lived in the power of the flesh through self-effort. It is a miserable, guilt-ridden, works-oriented type of lifestyle, a lifestyle that is less fulfilling than being a non-Christian where you don't have to worry about these sorts of ethical duties and concerns. And I think the fundamental failure of this ex-Christian is that he did not understand that the Christian life is primarily about being, not doing. For him, the Christian life was primarily about what he did for God to show his gratitude to God. It was all about doing, all about performance, and not about being, about abiding in Christ, in the life of the vine, enjoying the grace of God and the forgiveness of God um, that enables one to have that source of power in life. Now certainly someone who is focused on being in Christ will be involved in doing. Of course he will. He'll be involved in evangelism and giving and acts of mercy and so forth. But those acts will not be the basis of the Christian life. They will be the overflow of an abundant life that is connected to the life of the vine. And so naturally produces this kind of fruit. So I want to suggest that those two reasons may be why so many Christians don't experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Either there's a lack of total commitment, they're not really sold out, the, the desire for other things, for material gain, the pressures of life, choke out the word in them and make them unfruitful, or else uh, they're trying to live the Christian life in their own power, and that results in futility, guilt, and a sort of grinding legalism. So that raises the question then, how can I then be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I want to suggest that it's a very simple matter of repentance and faith. Repent and believe. First of all, repent. We need to confess to God the known sin that is in our lives. Um, we need to come honestly before him and acknowledge the sin that he convicts us of. First John uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 gives this promise. First John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing to do is to repent. Quit hiding from God. Quit rationalizing uh, your sin, but confess known sin to God, acknowledging it before him. 
And then secondly, that's the negative aspect. Then the positive aspect is to believe. That is to say, to yield oneself to God as a living sacrifice in the way that Paul prescribes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Body and soul yielded to God as a sacrificial offering. This is not dependent upon emotions or feelings which come and go. This is a commitment of the will. And then having done that, having made that uh, total commitment of yielding yourself to God as a living sacrifice, then we need to walk in the Spirit on a daily basis, to log time in the Spirit. We need to practice immediate confession of sin and re-surrender of our lives to God. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not the uh, sort of permanent status that a Christian enjoys. Rather, one can, through sin, retake control of one's life, and you need in that case to practice confession again, claim 1 John 1, 9, and then re-surrender your life to God. This is the difference between a living sacrifice and the sacrifices in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices were slaughtered before they were presented to the Lord. They were dead. But Paul says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. And that's much more difficult, right? Because a living sacrifice tends to crawl off the altar. So this is a life that needs to be continually re-surrendered daily to God uh, through immediate confession of sin and uh, recommitment. The scripture indicates that as Christians, we can grieve the Holy Spirit through sin. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And the context of Ephesians 4 makes it evident that we do that through sin in our lives. By sinning, we grieve the Holy Spirit and so lose his fullness. Not only that, however, we can also quench the Holy Spirit's work in our lives through disobedience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19. Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. I think the difference between grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit is that grieving the Holy Spirit is done through sin. Whereas quenching the Holy Spirit involves not following the Holy Spirit, but suppressing his activity in your life. The context of 1 Thessalonians 5 is don't despise prophesying. Uh, don't try to quench the Spirit in your life. We, we quench the Spirit when the Holy Spirit is leading us to do something and we refuse to do it. Uh, or we feel his conviction 
that something needs to change, and we, we quench it and suppress it. Uh, and again, by doing that, we will forfeit his power and direction in our lives. So we need, as Christians, to be continually confessing our sins and re-surrendering the control of our lives to God so as to not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit through sin or disobedience. And so this involves a daily commitment. Uh, every day that you get up, before you roll out of bed and your feet hit the floor, just say a prayer, Lord, take control of the throne of my life today. Live out your life through me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Direct and control me today. Jan gives a wonderful illustration of this truth of walking in the Holy Spirit. She thinks of it as a sort of umbrella through which you walk through life's storms. And as long as you stay under God's umbrella, you'll be safe in the storms of life. Now, that doesn't mean you won't suffer, but you'll be where God wants you to be. You'll be in his will. But if you stray off the path or, or go outside the umbrella, then you're apt to go into the ditch or into disaster because you're no longer walking in the will of God for you. So we want to stay under that umbrella of God's will along life's way. And that will be done by allowing the Holy Spirit to empower and direct us day by day as we go along life's path. Any comments or questions on what I've shared this morning? Taylor? Uh, yes, uh, about the vine and the branches. Uh, I was curious about uh, when you're talking about Christians that do not bear fruit, do, do you mean uh, uh, nominal Christians or Christians that are saved? I'm thinking here of Christians that are saved. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about the day of judgment when we will all stand before Christ. And he says that judgment day will test each man's work to see how he has built on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And he says some people's work will be burned up. It's like wood, hay, and stubble that they've built on the foundation, whereas other people's work are like gold, silver, and precious stones. They survive the fire of judgment. Um, and Paul says he himself will be saved, this, this person. He is a regenerate Christian, but his works are going to be all burned up, and so he will not receive the sort of reward that he would have received had he been faithful. Okay. Um, I, I was just mainly curious because of uh, in, in uh, John 15, which you were mentioning earlier, it mentions that uh, I am the, uh, for, uh, verses 1 and 2, um, I am the true vine, and my father is uh, the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit is pruned so that it may, uh, that it will even, yeah, <laughs> that it, it will even uh, be more fruitful. Yes. Yeah. And then a particularly verse 6, which I didn't read, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers, 
and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now that raises the question of apostasy. Can someone commit apostasy and be severed from the vine in such a way as to lose his salvation? Uh, to all appearances, the testimony that I read this morning is of a person who has committed apostasy and may find himself in that sort of situation. I don't think we know when a person has crossed that line or not. I think we always have to assume that it's possible for him to repent and come back, and we should pray and work for that. But there may be persons, such as Jesus describes here, who have become so severed from the life of Christ that they are now lost. But that's a question we'll take up later. I, my focus today is on the fullness of the Holy Spirit and not on the question of perseverance of the saints. Okay, we have a question over here. I just wanted to give a, a very interesting picture that we saw recently. We have some crepe myrtle trees in the back of our house, and uh, a few months ago my wife cut some branches off those crepe myrtle trees, scraped the twigs and, and the leaves off of them, and used them to fashion sort of a decorative arbor on the back of our deck. Uh, but the interesting thing was about two or three days after that, they started sprouting. They, they budded, and they started growing leaves. And now about three months later, there's still tiny little semi-shriveled, but still alive leaves growing on these sticks that have been cut off. But if, you, but if you look at that and you compare it to the trees growing right beside it, the leaves on the trees are green and lush and full yeah. and alive. And these branches that have been severed have these tiny little shriveled leaves. And, and it just is such a, a perfect picture yeah. of the, the branch trying to produce fruit on its own and how maybe it can produce a little bit, but it is absolutely nothing compared to what it can do when those branches are still yeah. connected into the tree. Wow. And how that's great. enough maybe in our own lives that maybe through our own efforts we're able to produce just the tiniest little bit of fruit and we deceive ourselves into thinking we can do it on our own. Hmm. And what a difference that is if we're truly abiding and, and what a yeah. difference there is in the fruit. That's a very poignant illustration. Uh, we'll take one more question, and then I want to close. George? Uh, Bill, uh, thank you for your uh, important insights there. I think I hear the uh, message of Bill Bright <laughs> and the yes. spirit-filled life. Uh, yes. But it seems to me every system of human thought that tries to address comprehensively reality says there's something wrong with human nature. And um, I think, um, if I understand correctly, uh, the main answer Christianity offers to the deficiencies of human nature and the human condition is the work of the Holy Spirit that happens here in this life, not something after death. But it seems to me that I've heard Christians before say, well, the answer to, you know, greed and um, lust and violence and selfishness and, so, and all the forms of evil is for everybody to become a Christian and, and walk in the Spirit. Well, that would be wonderful, but I don't think that's you know, Matthew seven thirteen and 14, you know, the way is narrow that leads to life, yes. few there be who find it. And, uh, for example, Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family, after that terrible shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, five years ago or so when those children were killed, he said, well, the answer is not gun control. It's for everybody to change their heart and become a believer. That would be fantastic, but I don't think that's realistic. Yes, George, I sympathize very much 
with what you're saying. I saw Franklin Graham on television this week saying much the same thing, that God is our only hope. And I thought, if that's true, then we are really in a hopeless situation. Because it's just highly, highly improbable that, as you say, everyone is going to turn to God and yield their lives to him. And so we'd better find some other way of managing to live in a society that is mixed, a mixture of good and evil in such a way that evil can be restrained and controlled through a system of laws and, and punishment and so forth. It's, it's just too facile to say, well, we all need God. Uh, certainly, I think that it's true that, as I've already explained, we, we do need God, the power of the Holy Spirit, in order to live a transformed life. But that's not going to be a realistic answer to the problems that society faces, which will always be a, a mixture of good and evil together. We've got to figure out ways to control and inhibit the forces of evil in society. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that though we are sinful and fallen creatures, that you love us so much and that Christ died for those sins to free us from guilt and punishment and to impute to us his righteousness. Thank you that as we are clothed uh, in his blood, we stand righteous and forgiven before you. And now, Lord, in the best way that we know how, we want to yield our lives to you as living sacrifices. Our bodies, pure and dedicated to you, our souls, given over to renewal through the transforming power of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would live out your life through us. Help us to abide in you as the branches abide in the vine and so to bear much fruit. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you would take control of our lives, direct us and empower us to live lives that are full of your fruit and that are pleasing to our God and Father. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.